This is Brown's Digest. What's going on, Dog Pound? Hope you guys are hungry. We are back for another episode of the Brown's Digest podcast, season two, episode two. And we have another guest for this week, no other than Jeff Lloyd from Locked On Browns. Jeff, how are you doing today? Uh, could be better, Sean. Um, you know, I, I think we're all probably right now, I think as much as everybody, you know, is eagerly anticipating you know, the freedoms and liberties of starting to get our lives back and, you know, the summer ahead for everybody as, you know, we all pretty much lost our summers last year, but I think Cleveland Browns wise. And I think a lot of people would just say, Hey, if you want to fast forward this about a hundred days or so and get this puppy out on the road, I think uh, there'd probably be a fair, if not about 50% who'd be all for it. Yeah, for sure. I know things are going to be a lot different, especially that they lifted the mask mandate for Ohio yesterday with Governor DeWine. And he also had an interview with 92.3 to fan today, basically saying that Brown's games can be up to 100% capacity. So now we start to get into that question of how many and if fans are allowed in training camp, how will that transition go? Because now we're going to the normalcy of seeing OTAs and a rookie mini camp, things that we didn't get to experience last year, at least in a non-virtual setting. So now we kind of get into that. Now we're seeing coaches on the field with without mask on, uh, which was, a, I wouldn't say a different experience, but it was uh, nice to see Kevin Stefanski uh, with pictures where he doesn't have a mask on around the players. So now we kind of get into the discussion of how soon will fans be in the stands in terms of training camp, if possible. Well, I mean, when you're talking about, you know, Coach Stefanski, first off, he's a handsome dude, got a killer beard. Uh, yeah. You have to cover that stuff up for almost 14 months. I mean, it's just, you know, I mean, it's just a, a, a miscarriage of justice, so to speak. Um, but, you know, with the coaching staff all fully vaccinated um, and, you know, I, I'm sure, you know, look, in some aspect, a lot of us probably just got used to it. Um, but, you know, these weren't things they were doing last year. They weren't on a football field last spring. And obviously everything was so limited and so quick as far as practice time they could do. And, you know, offensive line coaches, defensive line coaches, your bigger dudes coaching, I, you know, I'm sure they couldn't stand any second of it. Um, and it just opens things up. And it just, you know, for anything, it's, you know, look, I think we're back to normal. And, you know, we're, we're getting back to what is football normalcy. And these guys, look, I mean, you know, for the players, they've been around it probably since they're eight, nine years old. And you're talking some members of the staff that have been around it, what, 35, 40 years, you know, wh whether it was player coaching at lower levels and to where they are now. I think it's just the, you know, the maturation, the graduation of, of getting back to football normalcy. And the fact that, you know, the Cleveland Browns have a billion reasons to be excited about what's in front of them, you know, with what the success they had last year, you know, the off season they put together, the draft class they put together. And, you know, I mean, the words chomping at the bit probably aren't even, you know, good enough to describe where this, you know, Browns franchise is right now, as far as, you know, getting back on a football field. And as odd as it sounds, I think the timing of all this is actually more beneficial for the Browns compared to last year, given how much of a difference their personnel is on the defensive side of the ball versus last year. We pretty much knew the offense was the side of the ball that was going to see the improvement given what they did in free agency with a lot of their one year deals. But also when you looked at it, 
there wasn't necessarily too many changes of who was coming in to revamp that offense. We all knew that that left tackle spot needed to be addressed, which they did with Dredgick Wills. And really for him, the biggest transition was moving from the right side to the left side. But when you look at 2021, now you're faced with up to potentially nine new starters on the defense. And now you really need that opportunity to see those players together. And I think this is a good segue into our first topic, which is the drama regarding voluntary OTAs. You have fans <laughs> and some people that think, oh, well, you need people to be there because you didn't have this opportunity last time. At the end of the day, there's still that big, bold lettering that says voluntary. Guarantee you, if your job said it's voluntary for to come in today, it wouldn't be that many people working, you know, because they prefer their time off. And really, in this situation with the offseason, I'm sure, you know, star players or depending on the new situation, the offensive players who you notice uh, were less in attendance for the voluntary OTAs is if you have a plan, you have a personal trainer and you have, you know, a couple players you like to work out with, that's fine because that's just their routine. And at the end of the day, professionals need that routine. And I think, too, for the offense, it's kind of a support of J.C. Treader with him being the president in the NFL Players Association and him saying earlier um, in the year about some players not attending OTAs or trying to keep with the virtual offseasons because it will potentially lower the amount of positive COVID-19 cases because we know that all players aren't going to be vaccinated. Well, the first thing, and to get to your point on this, I think this, uh, the same people who are probably complaining about the fact of you know whatever the attendance rate is for the Cleveland Browns at OTAs are probably the same folks who are a little bit upset that their bosses, who were kind enough to let them stay home for 12 to 14 months, are saying, um, it's time to come back to the office every day. Yeah. Um, this is the way this is going to go. Because yeah, I'm sure there's some coinciding there of, you know, that same type of thing. And look, if it's, you know, we're getting to this point where, and look, Ohio, I'm here in New Jersey, masks are off. Um, you're allowed to, you know, go about, you know, your normal lives, obviously be smart, you know, to be as smart as you possibly can. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to help to reverse these numbers. Um, but with, you know, that being said, you know, and on the offensive side of the ball, it's, it is, I, I agree with your point on JC Treader. And, and I think that it, people think, and this isn't necessarily just a Cleveland Browns thing. And this is where JC Treader is in a tough spot. He's standing up for what, you know, he thinks may be best for every player in this league, not just now, but in the future. And, you know, that's the way it goes. And it's a tough spot for him to be in. And, you know, with him being a little bit later in his career, and if anybody understands, you know, the injury concerns and how it can derail a player's career, it is certainly a player like J.C. Treader. I honestly believe Baker Mayfield, some of this is due to the fact that how do you not back up your center? A, number one, it has nothing to do with the fact that he's the NFL Players Association president. It also has to do with the fact that, you know, this is one of the people who, you know, basically saves Baker's bacon. Right. You know, so if it's, hey, I'm standing this and plus it makes more it gets more waves when it's a quarterback with anything that's done within football, play on the field, play off the field, what you stand up for, what you don't stand up for. Once a quarterback does it and especially an established quarterback, you know, a veteran starter now as Baker goes in a year four, it gets a, head, a lot of headlines. Of course it does. And that's the point of it is the point of it is, is look, some of this stuff doesn't have to be done here anymore. We've just proven that and getting back to my point of just general people. Hey, maybe we don't need to be in the office five days a week. Okay. But if that's okay, then maybe a lot more can be done at home. The offense, what are they really doing? Maybe they're looking for new wrinkles. Kevin Stefanski is looking to add some more things to it. A lot of that can be done through zoom. 
other than Anthony Schwartz, uh, Demetric Felton, and a couple of you know the the you know the second you know string offensive linemen, they know everybody in this building. They know what they're capable of, and a lot of it could be just sat down and chalk talk and hear this is what we want to do, and these are some things we're going to work on when we do physically get to see each other again. They all work out together. Apparently, a bunch of them play golf together. They spend time together, so you're not concerned so much nearly about it. And we talked about this the other day, you know, on the show. The defense, yeah, that's where it's a little bit different, and it is tough because you can't really say we're going to set a double standard here. But defense, you're talking for a really, really good probability of nine new defensive starters. And, you know, Joe Woods, we don't even truly know what Joe Woods' vision is for this defense because he played with such a stacked deck against him last year, and it was basically, all right, who do I got this week? Who's in? All right, well, this is at least the game plan I can come up with. Oh, my God, offense, please score a lot of points because I don't know what's going to go on the defensive side of the ball. But now you're gravitating towards getting players that we think fit what Joe Woods has told us he wants to do. He wants to play a lot more defensive backs. He wants to play a lot more nickel. He wants to play a lot more dime, regardless of the opponent, regardless of the down and distance. He wants more athleticism on the field. They got that through the draft. You bring in a player like John Johnson, you get Grand Delpit back. You have a Ronnie Harrison. There's three safeties there. And between two of them, they can do safety uh, linebacker type things. Another cornerback added. If you get Greedy Williams back, all of a sudden you're looking pretty deep at cornerback as well. But Joe Woods needs to see all these moving parts and how he's going to figure it all out, and, you know, how he's going to put it in. Not to mention, other than you know, Miles Garrett, his entire defensive line, well, Miles Garrett, Jordan Elliott, there's a really good chance that the entire defensive line is going to be brand new other than those two guys. Oh, for sure. You know, they're deep now at the edge. Uh, defensive tackle, again, other than Jordan Elliott, they didn't get to meet with Andrew Billings last year, obviously. Um, you know, there was no OTAs, and even still, he opted out extremely early. You know, Joe Woods needs to get in. A lot of it is, is just spending a little time. And it, Zoom meetings are fantastic, but you know, face-to-face, getting to know the guy a little better, choking around, understanding some more likes and dislikes. These Zoom calls are great, and they get a lot accomplished but it also has a very business-like attitude to it. And to get to know these personalities, sometimes you literally just got to get some one-on-one time. And I think that's why it's crucial for the defense. I'm great to see that the amount of guys that have been showing up, um, it's really been positive. It's been a high number on the defensive side of the ball, which I really think is good because we understand this defense is probably going to have some growing pains starting the season, but anything you can do to maybe eliminate some of those growing pains early on is just huge. Yeah. And I want to focus for a second on the comment that you said about the injuries and early in this offseason, which was, I would say, overall, just a poorly handled situation. We look at Juwan James, the offensive tackle who was cut by the Denver Broncos. He's working out away from the facility. They cut him after he tears his Achilles. And now he's in a situation where he's not really going to get paid much money at all, if any. So now they're going through that process of him filing a grievance against the Denver Broncos to try to get some salary back. But what are your thoughts of players working out away from the facility with the potential of, you know, it happens every year, unfortunately, but like if someone gets injured, do you think there's any difference between if I came to an OTA versus if I were working out on my own? There shouldn't be. Um, you know, and what would be the other alternative? Juwan James shows up to an OTA and he weighs 370. 
because he hasn't done anything. Right. And he's basically been living the buffet circuit and, you know, and just sitting at home eating because he's, you know, God forbid he gets injured while he's working out on his own. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they don't want, you know, players are not going to be there 365 days a year. You are bringing players in and, you know, you, you look at the amount of players who grow up, who grew up in either Texas, Florida, California, wherever it is. I mean, you know, yeah, they can take their life to Ohio and maybe if they're married and their family, but what are they going to do? They're going to take their mom and dad, their mother-in-law and the father. I mean, there's, you're not going to get a family of 25 deep to uproot themselves to Ohio because one dude might play for the Cleveland Browns. Um, these guys are going to work out. You've got to find a happy median, you know, and the players are not going to stop working out. They want to be in peak physical position, you know, uh, peak physical shape. You're obviously whatever money you make, an NFL player is always striving to make more money. How do you do that? You put yourself in the best physical position, best uh, you know, athletic position to go in to have a great season to make more money. That's the name of the game. So, you know, maybe find a way to change the wording in these contracts where, hey, look, if it does happen, you do get hurt, you know, maybe it's 50% of your salary. Um, you know, for, but you get a situation like Juwan James, you're busting his butt, you know, trying to do everything you can to help that franchise, you know, to help a quarterback like Drew Luck. This happens in the Brown, you know, the Broncos give him a look at, well, all right, well, you're not getting your 10 million. It's it's ridiculous in his premise. Look, I mean, if guys, you know, and of course change the, you know, the contracts, the guy gets in a car accident because, you know, he's had one too many, he's driving 105 miles an hour, or he's driving a dirt bike down a hill and he falls off. Those type of things, yeah, that's fine. I mean, you essentially voided your contract, but you cannot tell me in any way whatsoever a guy working out at the gym closest to his home with a big-time professional athletic trainer is in some way voiding his contract. It makes absolutely zero sense whatsoever. Yeah, and I would much rather have a player come in in shape versus you, okay, I'm going to step away from the NFL for a second, but when you look at James Harden, before he left the Rockets this season and ended up in Brooklyn, there was so much talk of he's overweight, he looks lethargic, doesn't even want to play basketball. And then all those rumors and talks eventually led to him leaving the team. Obviously, he ended up in Brooklyn, but I would much rather be in a situation of this player's in shape because he's been working out all offseason or potentially even be in better shape based off the personal trainer that he's been working with compared to someone that comes in, they're overweight, uh, they're, they don't you know know the playbook that well because they weren't working out individually on their own. And you only can have organized team activities or these mini camps based off of what the NFL approves. So after a certain point, more times than not, they're spending a lot of their time working out on their own. Just imagine if Odell wasn't able to work out successfully after he experienced that injury with his different trainers and rehabbing that knee back. We wouldn't see those videos of him posting how healthy he is because now there's the worry of, am I going to get a contract because there was a, a regression in my knee and now I can't play for the season because I end up on the physically unable to perform list. So I definitely think the Juwan James situation is a good standard in terms of where the NFLPA wants the NFL and the owners to move in terms of this is how you should guarantee someone's contract in a situation there's an injury during the offseason away from the facility given the circumstances understandable if you're working out that's that's something almost that you can't control you know a, a freak accident like tearing your achilles but like you said if you're on a dirt bike and you get injured then it's you know you're, you're kind of on your own on that one where it's more idiot i don't want to say idiocy in that situation but you know mm-hmm. it's something that it was it was controllable that you could have potentially avoided so <clears throat> 
as we move to the roster, especially entering training camp, we have uh, next week there will be another uh, voluntary OTA. They'll have a little bit of time, and then they'll start to have mandatory mini camps before we start to you know speed things up and get into training camp towards the end of July. Looking at the defensive tackles, I think this is arguably the biggest group that has the most important competition for uh, training camp just because you don't necessarily know who's going to be part of that group and how many players they're going to keep at one defensive tackle and at the defensive end. And I would say, two, the number of defensive ends that's kept on the roster when they make that 53-man cut down could be huge on some of these players that either make it um, you know, on the interior of that defensive line. So who do you think is going to be on that 53-man roster come week one? I think you've, you, you, you're probably looking at five and, um, you know, I think Jordan Elliott obviously is going to be here. Um, you know, he graded out pretty well last year. One of the reasons they loved him coming out of Missouri and, you know, the Browns will always mix, you know, the analytics, of course, with the athletics, if you were a player that grades out, you know, they, they, they like players like that. It's great to have a player like miles Garrett who puts up a ton of numbers, but maybe the grade doesn't always match the performance. That's fine. But how do you offset that? You offset that by players who grade out, grade out well. So Jordan Elliott, who should be in line for a lot more time this year. Andrew Billings, he brings something that really they don't really have in this room. He's your plugger. You know, he is, you know, he's built like a six foot two fire hydrant. He's strong as hell, takes up a lot of space, but he also has a lot of athleticism. So there's two. Um, obviously, with signing Malik Jackson. I think the role is going to be very defined for Malik Jackson. I don't think it's going to be a lot of early down work, but you know, I do believe they they value what he can bring from the interior as a pass rusher. There, so there's your third. Where they drafted Tommy Togiai, he's going to make this roster. They understand, and I think it's probably a similar path to Jordan Elliott, where they can say, "All right, we're going to take year one slow, and we're going to give it some time." Understanding he didn't have a long season last year in the Big Ten was not really a you know long-term starter in his days at Ohio State, but a player they love the motor, they love the athleticism, they love the strength numbers, but you know probably needs some refinement. Uh, Marvin Wilson, I think, is going to make this roster for a second year in a row. The Browns took a you know a good amount of you know uh, draft pool money and applied it to an undrafted free agent. I don't think they're going to get nearly as lucky this year like they did last year where they were able to cut A.J. Green on Labor Day weekend and then stash him away on the practice squad for a couple weeks. Marvin Wilson, there was a lot of competition. And the Browns just decided to go with an offer that his agent at the time was not going to turn down. Uh, so he got a really good amount. Maybe he doesn't dress every week. Maybe Tommy Togiai doesn't dress every week. Um, but they're looking at this and understanding the fact that, you know, Billings, it is a one-year deal. Malik Jackson, it is a one-year deal. Um, Jordan Elliott, you know, only in second year in the league. Um, defensive tackle is not a position they're going to probably ever throw big money at unless maybe they draft one once in the first round. Um, so then you would get to maybe 2021 where you have a cheap player in Marvin Wilson. You have a cheap player in Tommy Togiai. And Jordan Elliott in year three still won't be making a ton of money. And then he can go out again and look for like a Malik Jackson or go pay a little bit of, you know, mid-level money, four or five million to another big run stuffer. So I think they're going to end up keeping five defensive tackles. And I think, you know, can maybe look at Malik Jackson as a player who could be maybe your fourth and a half defensive end and also your fourth and a half defensive tackle. Yeah, so to round up that group, you have Sheldon Day, who they had as a practice squad player, Malik McDowell, a former second round pick by Seattle that hasn't had an opportunity to play in the NFL for various reasons. Obviously, he sprint that uh, stint in prison. 
And then, of course, uh, had that ATV accident, which we were just talking about earlier, ironically. <laughs> and yes. then uh, Damian Square, as well, rounds out that interior of that defensive line training camp competition. And a player that kind of sticks out to me is Malik McDowell, because there were questions just the other day for the first day of media um, availability for OTAs. They asked about Malik McDowell. And when you see his size, I mean, 6'6", 295, and he's definitely, his stature is a lot bigger than a lot of other players. So it kind of, um, there's a curiosity for me with how he could potentially fit into this roster. And if he's someone that makes it to the 53, I think his positional versatility is going to be something that could really be that biggest factor for him making a week one, um, you know, final 53. And with that, if he can be that player that could potentially play that, I believe it's like a, a, a maybe like a four eye technique where you mm-hmm. play a shade inside of the uh, tackle's shoulder and you kind of split the guard a little bit. I guess more in that situation, that would probably be something more adept for, say, um, where you have Sione Takitaki or that strong side linebacker playing on the line, maybe against a run early on, given that Malik Jackson is a little bit smaller, he could potentially. Uh, you know, playing for some time there. And maybe it gives you a little bit of flexibility to stand up Jadavian Clowney, which he has done in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's not too much of a difference anyway between a 4-3 over and a 3-4 over. That was something I really talked about when Joe Woods was first added to the Browns because his time in Denver, he had uh, Bradley Chubb and Von Miller, who's two stand-up linebackers. But really the only difference in terms of how they scheme up is that you just have a player standing up versus their hand in the dirt. So if he does that, I think he could potentially find his way on the roster, um, which may surprise some people at six, but then it maybe pushes a defensive end, like a maybe a Porter Gustin, um, you know, off the roster, if or Joe Jackson, if mm-hmm. they decide to continue with um, his, what's his name, Curtis Weaver, someone like that. Um, or, you know, depending on how they feel about him, he could be a practice squad candidate. And I agree with you. I don't think they'll have the luxury of treating Marvin Wilson this year similar to what they did with A.J. Green and protecting him each week. I think if he doesn't make it on that first 53, someone scoops him up off of uh, waivers uh, almost immediately. They would actually maybe be able to remove Marvin Wilson in that scenario. And it'd be funny for a player that was undrafted. They might actually be able to recoup a draft pick for him, if you think in, you know, obviously the fact of, you know, the war of attrition and, you know, maybe a team getting banged up at the defensive tackle position gets desperate. There was once a time, you know, Marvin Wilson carried a top 50 grade in his draft class. You know, obviously a lot of things led to where he ended up not getting drafted. Um, but the talent is there. And obviously not about people are, you know, are going to deny that. The thing with Malik McDowell, it's just a bunch of things. Look, I mean, we all know, you know, he used to be an incredible athlete. We don't know enough yet to know if that is all still there, you know, with the injuries that he did suffer, you know, with, with just with the fact that he's not been around the game, he's just literally not. And the other thing is, is, you know, is Malik McDowell, is he going, is he 100% in, you know, is he now going to take all this athletic ability he had, which he survived on at Michigan state because he certainly didn't take the coaching. Is he now a guy that's going to sit in a meeting, you know, for a little bit longer or say, coach, I understand the zoom's over. Uh, but if everybody's bailing, can, can we stay on for another 10 minutes? I got a couple of questions, you know, and you, you said this, you know, what exactly did you mean? You know, and we've, you know, we certainly, you know, heard of and seen guys that have been away from the game and, you know, it basically lit the fire, you know, greater than it ever was. 
These are the things we don't know with Malik McDowell. And obviously only time will tell. And of course, you know, can he keep himself on the straight and narrow to even get to August? Um, the, the athleticism was once there. Um, you know, a great build. I mean, when you talk about 6'6", 295, and the athlete that he was to go along with it, special, special talent. But there's so many other things that equate into it. And obviously, we don't have that information now. You know, it's going to take some time before we get to see it all. But you never know. I mean, could you, I mean, you could have maybe found something or you could have maybe found something that, you know, Malik McDowell just, you know, within his head, within his mind, it was great enough to be a fantastic college football player. And there's just not much more else there. Yeah. And sometimes you need a player to step back and miss out on the opportunity to realize how much of opportunity they actually have one to even be in the NFL where you have players that would, you know, kill for opportunity just to even compete in training camp. And, you know, obviously I've never, well, I don't want to say obviously, but I've never been to prison, but I, I guarantee you that's not a place where you sit, you know, for an extended period of time and think, well, I got a shot in the NFL. If it doesn't work out, I'll just do whatever else. You've pretty much already seen this is what rock bottom looks like. <laughs> and once you get the opportunity to get away from it, you know, you want to do everything possible to, you know, es- escape those circumstances. Now, we've already kind of dealt with the situation where a player has, you know, personal life issues that affects their ability to stay on the field with uh, Josh Gordon. You know, obviously the circumstances were, were different given the, you know, the substance substance use issues that he had, but they tried to do everything possible to support him. You know, they gave him the staff. They tried to give him the emotional support that you need and give him all the resources available to make that decision. And potentially if they give that to Malik McDowell, understanding that he's not a player, you know, that they drafted or we've seen him potentially be an all pro talent. We haven't seen that from him, but if they can give him that similar type of support, maybe he can, you know, flip that switch. And that's what it takes from some people. Um, Alden Smith was able to reinvigorate his career after being a almost a dominant player with the 49ers. He's now back with the Cowboys in NFL. So, I mean, we've seen it happen before, but it really does come down to him. Um, in terms of the defensive tackle group, you know, we no longer have that certain veteran captain leader on the defensive line. Obviously, we have Miles Garrett and Javon Clowney who has that experience. But on the interior, with Sheldon Richardson go- being gone, who do you think steps into that role? I think it'll be a combination. You know, I, I think Jordan Elliott, maybe it's just a little bit early. But, you know, Andrew Billings, you know, he's certainly been around the league. Malik Jackson, you know, been a part of Super Bowl teams. Uh, you know, he obviously has the most experience in the room, has the most success in the room at the defensive tackle position. Um, you know, I, I think he comes in and he kind of comes, you know, big bro of the room and, you know, he's going to be that guy. Although, you know, as far as what you think of from a traditional defensive tackle, he's not really that more, you know, I mean, not that he's not good in run support, but certainly more of a plus pass rusher at the interior position, but he, yeah, essentially becomes, you know, the Sheldon Richardson, the big brother of the room this year. And, you know, a guy who's not going to be asked to play a ton of reps, which I think he's okay with, because maybe it gives him an opportunity to play another year after this, maybe even another year after that gets to keep him fresh. Um, but he's going to come in and, you know, he's going to have, you know, between Jordan Elliott, between Tommy, Tommy Togiai, between Marvin Wilson, he's going to have a lot of young guys asking a lot of questions and with a lot of curiosities, uh, you know, about life in the NFL, about, you know, how do you play this guy in the interior? How do you play that guy in the interior? And, you know, Malik Jackson, Malik Jackson's got a lot of answers to those questions. And, you know, he's going to be now the guy that's going to kind of move into that mentor role. 
Yeah, and I think that experience will be great for the development of Jordan Elliott, especially because his time of coming out of Mizzou, he really showed his ability to rush from the interior. And when you have mm -hmm. someone that's had success like that throughout his career with Malik Jackson, that definitely can help him with his tools and his mechanics of how to become a better rusher on the interior, especially with his size. Because when you look at Elliott compared to Jackson, that's almost maybe 20, 25 pounds uh, size difference. And when you can get someone with those tools at a bigger size, that's definitely an additional benefit of having a potentially a three down defensive tackle, especially considering Billings and Jackson are on those one year deals. So continuing on the defensive side of the ball, another group that's really going to have a solid cornerback competition and one that you really want to see be healthy again is going to be the cornerback group. Now, having Greg Newsom drafted in the first round, you get Greedy Williams back after dealing with that shoulder injury last year. So my question to you is, which third down personnel grouping do you think will be utilized most by Joe Woods in this upcoming season? Well, uh, I think a lot of that's going to have to do with, you know, where, you know, JOK is with his development. Um, but it's going to be a lot of, you know, I think it's going to be a lot of three cornerbacks. And it's going to be, you know, possibly, you know, four cornerbacks or three safeties. Where do you count, you know, uh, Owusu Koromoa in this factor? Um, you know, you brought in Hill, who's one of the best, you know, slot corners in the game. Denzel Ward, um, one of, you know, he's no doubt their number one corner. The competition between Greedy Williams and Greg Newsom is going to be interesting. Um, we don't truly know yet what this front office thinks of Greedy Williams. They didn't draft him. He hasn't obviously done much for them. He was hurt extremely early in training camp. And you know, thus we never got to see any of him in 2020. So we're not exactly sure what their stance is with him as a player. Obviously they felt a ton uh, you know, of love for Newsom as you know, he was the first round overall pick at number 26. Um, you have a player like AJ Green, that, you know, who's you know still around, a player they thought a lot of the year before. Um, so you know they're probably looking for some development from him in year two. Uh, John Johnson being here, Grant Delpit being here, Ronnie Harrison being here. These are all players that are part of the Barry Stefanski regime. They brought these players in for a purpose. Um, then you, you know you get to the linebacker position. They brought back Malcolm Smith. They absolutely love his coverage ability. I don't think they care so much whether or not he plays on first down or second down, um, but they know for right now, he is the best coverage linebacker they have. This maybe won't be the case come later on in the season. You know, doesn't Owusu Koromoa catch on really, really quick? And he's ready to basically take that role. I think that's why they, you know, wanted to bring Malcolm Smith back. They know what he can do for them this year. Maybe the hopes are there that if somebody's not going to pass him this year, uh, you know, somebody will you know, obviously be in line to take his role going on. So they covered their base as well, but I, I think they're excited, you know, to play a ton of dime and, you know, not necessarily have labels traditional that people would be comfortable with. You know, you're going to see these three safeties out there. Maybe you see a Wusu Koromoa out there and you're kind of going to have to say, Oh, well, so-and-so is the Mike and it could be 22. It could be 28. It could be, you know, Harrison, it, it could be John Johnson, the third, and it's just trying to get your best, athletes on the field because if your corners do their job the safeties play their deep responsibility then what becomes the issue the short underneath stuff to the tight ends or running backs out of the backfield and guess what we now have players playing and covering those guys 
who were just as athletic as the guys they were covering, which wasn't the case last year, uh, you know, with BJ Goodson, as great as he was, you know, Malcolm Smith obviously you know, did a good job, but now you were trying to, you know, go athlete on athlete and it's going to give Joe Woods, you know, a lot of opportunity there. And then whatever he wants to do with his defensive line, you can play three edge rushers wherever you want to line them up, all run sub four, six. Uh, you have a Malik Jackson, um, Curtis Weaver was a fantastic player at Boise State, probably going to give be given an opportunity to take on a role here if he can do it. You have Malik Jackson, who's got a fantastic record as a pass rusher. Uh, this is, you know, and I mean, they could just go this route right off the bat. I mean, they're going to play Anthony Walker, obviously, but there's enough athletes in-house that this could essentially be their defense, and it doesn't necessarily have to have a label. The label What's the label on defense? The label is our four best pass rushers, and our seven best athletes after that. And we're going to chase you all over this field all day long. And that's a, a great problem to have, especially considering who you play twice a year in the Baltimore mm-hmm. Ravens. And I and think the that's, recipe that's been used to beat them in playoff games. Exactly. And, and I think a lot of people don't recognize it. But when you look at that Super Bowl a few years back, where it was the 49ers and the Baltimore Ravens, the biggest thing that the 49ers did with success was running the ball with, with Kaepernick. And there was that issue of how you defend the read option. And then the Ravens, I think with Ray Lewis, they did a really good job of giving a blueprint of how to contain a quarterback and was really being able to push things back inside. But given that Lamar Jackson is, you know, basically one of the best quarterback athletes that we've seen since arguably Michael Vick, you need people on the outside to have enough speed to contain him inside, which is a harder thing to do. And then you get that benefit when you have seven athletes on the field. It's a lot easier. Uh, I don't want to say easier, but the job is much more doable when you can bring, you know, 11 hats to the football where you got people fast enough to help keep the boundary safe. So for me, I would say the biggest thing is, and I know you say like those labels are something that's going to be difficult for people to put on the Browns defense. It kind of comes down to that dime, which is four corners, a big dime where you have that extra safety and then a dollar, um, Uh, personnel set where you have potentially and I don't think there's going to be a situation where you have three rushing down defensive linemen and two linebackers uh, unless in that situation they just play JLK strictly as a linebacker this year I would say probably you have a 4-1-6 type of dollar situation Mm -hmm. Um, because personally I think with the addition of Troy Hill nickel is going to be a more traditional nickel where you have three cornerbacks and one less linebacker on the field because of that veteran experience that he offers. And that competition, too, with Greedy Williams and Greg Newsom. With Newsom, I feel like you get that scheme versatility that he can play both man and zone, but preferably you want him to be your boundary corner. And in a situation that either one of those players between Greedy and Greg Newsom Whoever doesn't win that competition, I would say you're almost kind of regulated to that dime role. In that situation, you would want someone like Denzel Ward moving over into the slot mm-hmm. where you have someone like Keenan Allen that plays predominantly in a slot for the Chargers and you play them this year. I would much rather want Denzel Ward covering him out of the slot and then you bring in Williams or Newsom to play that other boundary corner with Troy Hill being there as well. So now... Once you go to big dime or that dollar situation, now it's kind of, is it going to be Greedy Williams or, you know, potentially JLK as that person that's additionally on the field? If the expectation is you're going to have Dale Pitt, 
uh, John Johnson and Ronnie Harrison on the field as well. Like there's there's so many different moving pieces. Now do you get into that situation of what if Greedy Williams doesn't make the roster because they have, you know, so many different players they feel can fit that role. We have a slightly bigger athlete on the field with a safety or that I would say rover hybrid in JOK. Now does that potentially put your cornerback four on the trading block to get another asset in a situation that someone goes down during training camp? It'd be interesting. And obviously, you know, there'd be the opportunity you could maybe fetch a pick for it. You know, I mean, this league is always starving for cornerback play. Um, and again, like I said, I mean, Greedy Williams, biggest thing is going to be healthy because the Browns have, they're not, again, they don't really know exactly who he is. Um, he's not played in their scheme. Um, you know, a, a, you know, complete lost year last year for a player that they did not bring in. So, I mean, he's in, I, I don't want to say he's in a tough spot, but I mean, you know, the health is going to be the paramount to give him a fighter's chance. I mean, you know, he's obviously not foreign to the fact that they spent a first round pick on the position that he plays. Obviously it's a player they you know, feel really, really legitimately high on in Greg Newsom. If it works out, Greedy Williams has a great camp. It puts them in just a fantastic position because even if you're going to be realistic about this, you know, Greedy Williams has had an injury history. So has Denzel Ward. Greg Newsom has had a little bit of history, you know, injury history in college as well. So you get to a position where you say, yeah, all right, we got three of them. Oh no. And you know, what are we going to do here? And then all of a sudden you end up in a position where those situations, you know, sometimes unfortunately work themselves out. So if you get an opportunity where you have three and there's weeks, maybe where you only have two of them, um, you know, it could turn out to be pretty beneficial, you know, obviously for the Browns to have, you know, high draft picks, former high draft picks, talented players at the cornerback position, because each one of them does have a question mark about their ability, whether or not they're going to be able to play not only 16 games, but now 17 games. Now, I get that they weren't, well, Greedy Williams wasn't drafted by this regime, but isn't there a slight similar evaluation of Grant Delpit of, yes, you know, he was drafted by Andrew Barry, but we didn't see him play at all last year. You know, he's coming off a, a pretty significant injury, especially with that Achilles. You know, how how does he fit in this role? And that's part of my belief of why I feel they will be running a little bit more traditional nickel with Troy Hill versus Grant Delpit being on the field as much as we anticipated last year when he was first drafted? Well, I think they're in an enviable position because they have one more year minimum here with Ronnie Harrison. Obviously, they saw a lot of Ronnie Harrison last year that they liked. He ended up being the best safety on this roster, and he was required, you know, he was acquired in late August. We know who the best safety should be on this team. We know it's going to be John Johnson the third. Um, Ronnie Harrison, and again, Grant Delpit, these are guys that can do multiple things. You know, they both can play closer to the line of scrimmage if asked. They can be one of these guys who sets the edge to get the Lamar Jacksons of the world to, you know, basically have to turn up where hopefully there's a bunch of people meeting, you know, meeting him there in the hole. Um, you're going to have to just see, um, you know, look, Joe Woods obviously was extremely fond. I mean, Grant Telpit was doing everything before his injury. He was playing everywhere in what we were able to see at camp coverage last year. They were teaching him every aspect of the safety position that they were hoping to get. And I, I and there's no doubt they thought, thought he was going to be the best safety they were going to have last year. Unfortunately, that didn't work out that way, um, but he's going to have the opportunity. Um, it's going to come down to health and it's also going to come down to, you know, how quick is he back? And, you know, I know a lot of people, you know, Achilles for a lot of people, it, it, it causes so much pause and concern and understandably so, but there certainly are those outliers of, you know, guys who are, you know, so athletic 
that even if it dings their athleticism a little bit, it doesn't overall really make that big of a difference if you were truly intelligent at that position, which appears that Grant Delpit was an extremely, extremely smart defensive back at his days down in LSU. Yeah, and I like the fact that they have Harrison because now you're not forced in a situation of we have to rush Dale Pitt back because he's the only other safety really have on this roster. Like you said, you have those two years, so you slowly work him into it. Then you still have two extra years after that with him to really def- step into that defined role of being that flexible safety that can play in a box, that can play the deep second half of the field or you know cover someone out of the slot. And if he can develop into that, I feel like that's a very good situation compared to how a lot of people were initially evaluating uh, JOK in terms of him being that same player that they want Grant Dale Pitt to be versus they say, you know, he's a linebacker on this roster. I think if you have that decision of we're going to employ him as a linebacker, now you really have that very matchup friendly defense as a whole like you said of just getting those athletes on the field because if you're in a situation where jlk and dale pitt are both supposed to play that same role then you kind of get in the situation of okay if they're both going to be doing the same thing why do i need both of them on the field at the same time versus if jlk is playing that i guess that versatile player from a linebacker standpoint versus just being strictly a safety now you don't have that consistent overlap you know what i'm i'm trying to get at of course i think and i think part of it though is is having a lot of these guys who are similar you know 6 2 220 all run really well between four fours and four fives and guess what i can just have the five of them standing seven yards apart from each other seven yards from the line of scrimmage and guess what you don't know who's doing what i mean you know i mean like, you know because you're going to try to confuse things as much as you can all right well who's who, who's got deep coverage i don't know john johnson can do it uh, delpit can do it Heck, JOK can do it. Ronnie Harrison can do it. So, you know, and then, you know, at the last possible second, as, you know, the offense is trying to milk the play clock down, trying to figure out what's going on, then have these guys start to slowly creep to, you know, the area that they're going to play. And it's going to make things really, really difficult. Um, it, it could be to the point where, the, you know, the Browns are going to have, you know, like, you know, basically an embarrassment of riches where we say, oh, my God, they have six or seven guys who can do the same thing. Keep in mind, over 17-game season, some guys are obviously going to miss time. But it's not the worst thing in the world to have, you know, six or seven, six, one, six, two, 220-pound guys who run four fives, who can play up around the line of scrimmage, can play, you know, between, you know, between the hash marks on tight ends, can play deep zone coverage. This is, you know, this is a nice problem to have if it all works out. And, again, it's just upping the athleticism you know, beyond, you know, you have such great athletes on the defensive line at pass rushers, just pure speed players. And this could lead to a lot of, you know, turnovers, gimme interceptions where you got quarterbacks saying, I got to get rid of this ball so I don't die here in the backfield. And you got a lot of defensive backs with a history of being able to jump balls due to athleticism. It could really be a fun problem for Joe Woods. I think it's the thing's just going to be, you know, taking the time with it and understanding you have a lot of guys and it's just going to be a, a, a situation of trying to find a way to make sure you're working everybody in and making sure every you're maximizing the fact that everybody can do more than one thing, which gets difficult. There's no way around that. And if the Browns are going to be what they're going to be, there's maybe going to be a lot more of the game being controlled by the Browns offense, where there's going to be snaps on defense for the Browns defense. 
but it's a great situation to be in. You know, nobody ever complains about saying, oh, I have too many of this. That's not a bad situation to be in. Right. So when you get past the top six or seven defensive backs and you look at MJ Stewart and AJ Green, where do you think they fit in this whole fold? For me, I think they really like MJ Stewart. I mean, there's a lot of things that, you know, MJ Stewart, you know, had time, you know, difficulties at time with last year. And again, he's not the most athletic guy. And if you put them all together with the rest of the athletes on this team, he's probably going to be in the lower one, two, three, as far as just overall athleticism, but he's a lot smarter and he's, he has a nose for the football. He has the intelligence to know when it's coming. So he's able to offset the fact that he's limited as an athlete. Um, you know, you, you know, obviously mentioned earlier about Denzel Ward, maybe getting some more time on the nickel, if that's the number one option. And my God, we've been screaming this on Lockdown Browns for years to maybe use him in that capacity. But you do need a second traditional nickel, probably if he can contribute on special teams, which MJ Stewart can. So I think he's in a good position. I think AJ Green is going to be a tougher hill ascent maybe for him uh, in this season. But I, I think, you know, MJ Stewart, as long as, you know, camp goes well, uh, they love the ball hawkness. I mean, they, you know, especially when you're getting that from a guy who's not going to be in your regular rotation, which they got to see from him last year. But I think you're going to, you know, and if you're going to rely on Ty Hill a lot, if something were to happen to Ty Hill and he misses a little time, you maybe don't want to just say, oh, you know, we're going to just, you know, basically punt on the nickel cornerback altogether. You're going to want somebody to do some of those things. And I think MJ Stewart is capable of that. Yeah, and I like his ability to blitz from the slot. I feel like that's something that's kind of underestimated in his game. And you've seen it throughout yep. the season that Joe Woods, he'll he'll send someone off the edge. And we've seen, you know, in previous seasons that Denzel Ward has the ability to do that with success. But obviously, I would much rather be in a situation where our nickel corner or dime is blitzing off the edge on a passing well, and situation. What's the, and what's for the easiest thing for a guy who's not getting a ton of reps? <laughs> Take a beeline of the quarterback, dude. You ain't got to worry about nothing else. Right. (laughs) So uh, as we kind of start to wrap up our final topic, one of the biggest things, and I feel like it's consistently going to be the theme, not only throughout training camp, but throughout the entire season, is positional versatility. And that's something that Kevin Stefanski and Andrew Barry consistently talk about in those media press conferences. And a player that really stands out to me is Demetric Felton. Um, you were in that tweet yesterday that uh, Gio had tagged us in asking, uh, you know, how Anthony Schwartz would be employed with the Percy Harvin comparison. But I think in ter- not in terms of like the talent and the player, but the way that the Seahawks employed uh, Percy Harvin, I think Felton could probably be in a similar role in terms of a player that can be used as a running back and a receiver and really cause mismatch uh, mismatches for the defense when he is in the game. Obviously, he's not going to be a person that's going to be there, you know, 30, 40 percent uh, of the snaps for the game. But if he's on the end there, you know, maybe 10, 12 snaps a game, you have someone that can do running back screens, receiver screens, jet sweeps, a lot of different motion um, that can confuse defenses. And I also like the fact that they're putting him with different position groups. Uh, you know, during rookie minicamp, he worked with the running backs. And then now during voluntary OTAs, he's been working with the receivers. And that gives him a better leg up, I would say, in terms of making this roster, being a a day three pick and the last pick of this year's draft. And then, two, I would say his performance during training camp could probably pay huge, huge dividends in terms of who they keep as that running back number three, since he'll probably be in a competition with Dearness Johnson. 
Well, the first thing you think about Felton and, you know, where, where you're bringing up positional versatility, you know, I, I think it's a fantastic point because once you're getting to, you know, 49, 50, 51, 52, 53 on the roster, um, you're going to want these guys who are going to be able to do, you know, a little bit more than just one thing. And Deardis Johnson, you know, as much as everybody liked him last year, and I, I think he did a solid job, he is what he is. I mean, he's, you know, he's a ball carrier. He's not much of a receiver. Yeah, maybe a screen every now and then. He wasn't terrible as a kick returner, um, but you upgraded with two guys that you drafted in that position between, um, <clears throat> obviously, Schwartz and certainly with, you know, Demetric Felton. Um, and why take away from the fact when he was at UCLA that he spent years at the wide receiver position and he spent years at the running back position, um, you know, grooming him as a possible guy to work in the slot. You know, everybody, and it's certainly not comparing him and, and saying he could be this type of player, but everybody would like to find a way to have some player that gives you some Alvin Kamara type of stuff. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Felton seems to be that guy, you know, Kareem Hunt, obviously a fantastic receiver, but as far as, you know, lining up in the slot, he's, I don't think he, he's a fluid, as fluid of a mover as Demetri Felton is. I think Felton's routes are quicker, cleaner. And this isn't a knock on Hunt because he's one of the best receiving backs in the NFL but Felton, it just seems smoother. And you can see that he literally has spent time at the position. He's just not a good running back who runs routes. He was a good receiver who knows how to run routes. Then right. you can also employ him in a James White type of role where it's, you know, two minute offense. And guess what? Well, you're going to cover everybody deep. That's fine. I'll take the eight, nine yards. He'll get out of bounds. We'll run another play and we'll either chase down a touchdown. We'll chase down a field goal. Um, and James White, another player you know, from the Patriots for years. There's another player, you know, teams would say, hey, if we could get somebody who can do those types of things, that'd be fantastic as well. Um, so he's really, really interesting. And I think it's crazy to say that, you know, anytime and anytime an Anthony Schwartz or Demetric Felton comes on the field, those are going to be the guys that the defensive secondary is going to be saying, oh, wait a minute. All right. Well, what are we doing now? I mean, you're talking Odell, you're talking Jarvis, you're talking Austin Hooper, David Ajoku, Rashard Higgins. All these other names, Kareem Hunt, Nick Chubb, but either one of those two players come onto the field, it's going to be one of those, oh, we weren't ready for this type of moments for the defense. Yeah, and I love the comparison of, of a James White in his role in the offense. And I think more and more that type of player, especially out of the backfield, is becoming very valuable in the modern NFL. And I feel sometimes people forget James White almost – I would say really helped him win that Super Bowl um, against the, I think it was the Atlanta Falcons. He had like yes. 11 catches. Uh, he scored maybe two or three touchdowns and the game winning one at that. Now, obviously he wasn't someone that you want to be carrying the ball 20, 30 times a game, but at the end of the day, a good coach and a good offensive game plan is going to have a player fit this specific role. And as long as you can do that well when called upon, you're doing exactly what you need. I mean, you have 53 players on the roster for a reason. You just need to make sure that each role is met because every player isn't going to have the same type of value against each opponent. Like if we play against someone, um, I guess really it'd be a little bit easier comparison for the Titans given how their offense is set up. But if you have a team that has a lot of good defensive backs, but they don't have really talented players along the defensive line or within that front seven, I would much rather have the ability to attack them out of the backfield. I mean, mm -hmm. could you just imagine a situation where you have Baker Mayfield in the shotgun and you have Kareem Hunt and Demetric Felton standing next to him? That automatically puts your linebackers at a disadvantage. 
because you have the option to either run the ball with Kareem Hunt or Felton. But when you're in that situation where they both flank out, someone motions out of the backfield, which they did plenty of times with Kareem Hunt, I don't think there's going to be too many linebackers that's going to be able to cover them in open space. And those could really be the difference between a first down or having a huge gain down the field when you have those clear or vertical routes, uh, which the Browns showed a very good, efficient uh, use of it last year. Yeah, and you talk about or the Pittsburgh Steelers who are going to bring, you know, Watt, um, you know, and you, the, the other players are going to bring all, you know, all, off the edge. That's fine. Guess what? You guys are going to bust your butt rushing all day. We're either going to throw it over your head or just as you go on the outside, we're going to run the Texas route with the running back. He's going to plant right in front of your face. So now I've got a middle linebacker having to make a decision on the back in front of him or the tight end of the wide receiver that's crossing behind him. And it just makes for easier throws. I mean, but look, I mean, if you can go nine for 10 with running backs out in the flat, find a way to get yourself 65, 70 yards on the, I mean, they're layups. So, and what do you do? And how does your quarterback progress? And how does he get even better statistically? Um, sure, you know, big throws, you know, do a lot of great things too. But I mean, you string together eight, nine singles, they all count the same. And if that's what, you know, giving yourself every advantage uh, in any week going in where, you know, we are so deep at wide receiver, you don't know who's going to get the ball because we don't even know who's going to get the ball. You don't know what tight end to cover. That's great. We don't know. Go ahead, cover whichever one you want to. We'll find the one that's open. And then you add the fact of, you know, having a Nick Chubb on the field and everybody knows what he's capable of. But then there's four other players on the field. And all right, well, if they handed 24, we're in trouble. They didn't hand it 24. It's play action. Now we got to back up. There's players running around everywhere. Um, all are good. All you know are decent athletes. All have production as receivers everywhere across the board at the wide receiver position, the tight end position, the running back position. You're just basically setting yourself up for the easiest game plan possible and the easiest open windows for Baker Mayfield, who's shown he plays best when he's not trying to feature one receiver. He plays best when he's reading the defense and saying, this guy's open. He's getting the ball. I don't care if he's wide receiver one, wide receiver six. I don't care if he's the fourth tight end, the third running back. He's open. I'm throwing it to him. For sure. So when you look at Felton and potentially being that kind of gadget type player, um, I personally feel that we could probably see Anthony Schwartz in that similar type of role. Probably not someone that lines up in the backfield, but someone, you know, that could either be outside the numbers or in the slot, using them on jet sweeps, motions, reverses, things like that. Almost 400 yards rushing in his days at Auburn. Oh, for sure. Um, So how do you think they'll try to employ uh, Schwartz? Do you think it may be in a similar role as Felton? Or do you think that most of his production will probably come as a vertical threat? Oh, I think it'll be done you know, with jet sweeps, too. And, you know, it, I mean, it's not a knock on Jarvis Landry, and he did a good job doing it. Um, but are you going to want to you know, run jet sweeps with a guy who runs four sixes? Or do you want to run jet sweeps with a guy who was literally supposed to be training to be an Olympian last summer before COVID hit? It's, I mean, you cannot take away how fast Anthony Schwartz is. You look at Kansas City. Um, and this is one I keep telling people, no, we're not talking Tyreek Hill, but they have McCole Hardman and McCole Hardman is just as fast as Tyreek Hill, just as fast as Anthony Schwartz. And he was an issue for the Browns last year because you, there are no safeties in the NFL who run almost sub four, three. So you're going to need two people to pay attention to him. And most likely he's going to be the fifth option on the field when he is on the field. So he goes deep. It makes everybody else's life easier. Of course, it's going to be slow and gradual, similar to what you did with Donovan Peoples-Jones, because the Browns are a very, very smart, well-run team now where they're not going to say, oh, we drafted this guy in round three or we drafted this guy on day three and we're going to throw the kitchen sink at him. It'll be simple, defined roles. 
using what they do best. Felton as a receiver out of the backfield. Sure, there'll probably be a carrier too. Anthony Schwartz, what's it going to be? We're going to put positions where it's going to be the fear of death that he may be getting a jet sweep and this defense is not set to get the corner on him. Or he is lined up in a slot one-on-one with the safety. And guess what? He's going to win that nine and a half times out of 10. And guess what? If you actually do cover him, I've got tight ends. I've got running backs. I've got great wide receivers I can go to. Uh, you know, Schwartz, again, I think it'll probably, like you said with Felton, I mean, you're talking both of them, maybe if they're lucky and things go really well, 10%, 15% of the snap count. But you want to see where these guys are through their rookie years before you start getting to 2021 and saying, well, how much more can we put on their plate? How well did they perform given the opportunity we gave them? Similar to Donovan Peoples-Jones, who's a guy we barely even mentioned in all this. And you're just starting to look. And this is what you do when you're a well-run franchise. You have to have an eye looking towards the future while keeping the presence in mind and understanding that it's not all about Jarvis Landry, Odell Beckham Jr., Rashard Higgins, and Austin Hooper. It's about you know where are the guys that we have invested in who are younger a year or two on down the line when money's certainly going to get a little bit tighter. And I think, too, the – Kansas City Chiefs could provide a good blueprint of how to install players, you know, that have a lot of speed or that flexibility to run those type of gadget plays. And I know that's something I keep coming back to is gadget plays because Stefanski actually does it very well. And there mm-hmm. were, I believe, three touchdowns that they scored. Um, and, I, and I know one of them, they had a big play down the field. But with Jarvis Landry and Odo Beckham throwing the ball, off those most um, those reverse plays, I'm not expecting Anthony Schwartz to do something like that, but it's just more of the threat that at any time something like that can happen. And a lot of those misdirections is something the Chiefs do very well against a lot of teams because we have someone that can run a sub 4-3-40. Pretty much the only thing you can do as a defense once they get their ball in their hands after the snap, that pre-snap motion is... Can you beat me to the edge? And more times than not, a linebacker or cornerback that's playing the slot is getting blocked by a tight end or potentially Donovan Peoples-Jones isn't going to beat Anthony Schwartz, you know, to the edge. Or in this, in their case, McCole Hartman, Tyreek Hale, obviously one of the fastest players in NFL. Those pre-snap motions, one, it, it causes defenses to freeze just for the slightest second. And that could be the difference between having that big play down the field, especially with Stefanski's ability to use play action, which I love. I mean, we've seen situations where Cordero Hodge is the person catching a deep post off a of play action down the field almost for a touchdown last season. Now, just imagine where we have a healthy Odell Beckham that's that player coming over the top. There's going to be a lot more explosive plays for those 20-plus yard gains. And if you can do that consistently because you have players that are motioning across the formation, now it's only going to get more and more damaging for those throwback kind of play action plays that they used so much last year. Well, you think about it, you know, say, you know, you know, you're running a jet sweep with an Anthony Schwartz from the left side to the right side. And it's literally just to have people have put notice on it. And then what do you run behind it? You run, you know, play action to Nick Chubb off the right side. Guess what now? Everybody is flowing to the right. You got secondary flowing to the right, worried about Schwartz. You got linebackers flowing to the right, worried about Nick Chubb. And what did you see the Chiefs do so well? Travis Kelsey, the top tight end in the NFL, sitting between the hashes like, nobody's here. Right. (laughs) Everybody's worried about everybody else. And I'm a better player than all the other guys that they were paying attention to. And yet they still left me wide open. So there's opportunity there for 30 
35 yard, 40 yard plays, even take it to the house with a guy like Schwartz, or you just piece together three, four, 15 to 20 yard plays, hitting a guy between the hashes because everybody's scared to death to what the speed can do of the wide receiver, you know, on the jet sweep of what Nick Chubb can do to you. Uh, and now all of a sudden, guess what? You left somebody wide open in the middle of the field and it's a cake throw. And, you know, I mean, it just gives so many options for what coach Stefanski can do. And again, all of this is done with one premise. You know the talent that Baker Mayfield has. But last year, the Browns almost played an arena league offense. They weren't able to challenge every inch of grass on that football field, which makes everything that Baker Mayfield did last year even more impressive because the windows were tight. And I'm talking really, really tight. And for him to do what he did without being able to challenge secondaries vertically was amazing. That's going to change this year, hopefully with a healthy Odell, with the growth of Donovan Peoples-Jones, with having a player like Anthony Schwartz on this field, and now with their renewed confidence in tight end David Njoku, who is as athletic as any tight end in the NFL. And that's something that we would love as Browns fans to see, their ability to spread the field, get everything more open, open up those windows for Baker Mayfield. And that was his biggest trademark coming out of Oklahoma was his ability to deliver the ball on time and accurately. And if you can give him a quarterback that's already accurate, a bigger window to throw in, that's just going to give you more consistent drives of putting points on the board. And at the end of the day, if you can get a touchdown over three points because of the players that have their ball in their hands can make a big play. We've already seen it on the ground with Nick Chubb with his ability to break tackles. Odell Beckham is dynamic with his ball in his hands. Obviously, we want to see a little bit more production out of the tight end room. Um, I think as well, this is something that Brandon Little brought up uh, in last episode, is that David Njoku, I think, is primed to have another good season or a better season, I should say, uh, compared to last year. And again, when you just have those weapons and the ability to spread out defenses, anything that's up those hashes and along the intermediate parts of the field are going to be wide open because you're going to be able to spread defenses out. So uh, looking up into this season, is there anything that you would want the friend, uh, excuse me, the fans to be looking out for on Locked On Browns? Uh, you know, we, we, the you know we've done you know a regular routine, and um, it seems the listeners seem to love it as far as you know our in-season approach. Um, you know, we do our pregame show, which usually comes out Friday night or whenever Pete's butt is off the high school football fields. Um, <laughs> we go right to the microphone, you know, at the final whistle. Um, and you know, this is something that got lost in the last couple of years, as you know, with some other shows as the Browns did a lot more prime time. And sometimes it wasn't always so easy. You know, I mean, you know, smacking or swilling coffee at 1215 at night because he wanted to pump out a post-game show. We incorporate some PFF stuff, and we've always done that. John Costco, um, who is the, you know, Browns uh, guy for PFF and, and senior analyst, um, lifelong Browns fan. Um, so you get the passion of him with the PFF analysis. We always do the crossover shows, you know, in the middle of the week with, you know, our locked-on host of you know, whoever the opponent is that week. Um, we've just had a, you know, we've had a blast and, you know, having done this since 2017, when this team was not very good at all, uh, to the fact that we've churned out a thousand shows, September will be four years, you know, doing locked on Browns and just seeing what, where this franchise is and most likely where it's headed, um, just enjoying it more and more. I mean, you know, we had a spout here where we off of Apple for 30 days due to some stupid updates through Apple and stuff they didn't care to fix. Um, is everything's back up and running now. Um, and I think what makes us different as opposed to a lot of other podcasts, I mean, you know, Sean, obviously I know you do a lot of work week in, week out. Um, we're here five days a week, um, year in, year out. Uh, I think 
the fact that we'll, you know, find a way to split hairs about a certain player in the middle of, you know, June is kind of what's, you know, separated us and kept us around and kept us fresh and, you know, kept us, you know, in listeners ears, so to speak. Uh, it's just been a blast. And it was so hard in the beginning. And even when I took this job, my discussions with David Locke from Lockdown was, well, you've had a lot of history covering the NFL draft. That's going to be good. That's not why I'm here anymore. Um, I'm here now for what this team is, the coverage we give day in, day out. And it's just been an absolute pleasure just seeing this franchise do a complete 180 from top to bottom where nothing ever went right, regardless of the players, the coaches, the front office, and where now, knock on wood, you know, we can pick on, you know, Andrew Berry for maybe, you know, taking a scratch off on a guy like Malik McDowell. And the reason why is because everything else has gone so well, you afford him the liberty to basically say, you want to know what? I know this doesn't make any sense, but you want to know what? Let's turn this rock over, see what's underneath it. Yeah. And ladies and gentlemen, when I say five days a week to pump out content is very difficult, especially when it's such high quality content and being able to give fans a unique insight and a very breadth and depth of information that all makes sense is huge. So make sure you guys uh, listen to Locked On Browns. I know uh, a lot of you already are. Um, And again, Jeff, I just want to thank you for joining me on the show. Make sure you guys give Jeff a follow. His Twitter information will be in the show image. And of course, the Browns Digest podcast is available on all your favorite audio streaming platforms, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. Thank you guys so much. We will see you next week and have a good one.